0: Great presidents, one of the great men in our nation's history. He was a decorated war veteran, as many of you know. In fact, we'll probably never have another president who served, fought in World War II. And maybe we'll never have one who was such a decorated with his military service. Likely the highlight of his career was when he spoke at my college graduation uh, back in 1988. I told him to, he was a vice president. I told him to ride on Reagan's coattails and give me a holler one day. But George Bush lived a great life. And uh, many are, of course, paying tribute as memorial services, funerals uh, will unveil themselves uh, this week. Um, He lived longer than any president ever lived. And some of you are aware of this. He started jumping out of planes when he retired as president, when he, he... Lost uh, one term, but after his presidency, he would jump out of airplanes. You guys know this, he was a parachuter, and he jumped out of an airplane when he was 90 years old. We got any old folks in the room? Anybody plan on jumping out of an airplane when you're 90 years old? And somebody asked him, I watched it last night, they asked him, Why would you do that? And he said, I don't want to be an old man drooling on himself in the corner. Now, here's what I know one day, likely, I'm going to be an old guy drooling on myself in the corner. But until then, right, I want to jump out of airplanes and live life. And our word for this holiday season is the word wonder. We broached it during our two-week sermon series on gratitude, and we're going to roll with it over the next four weeks, all, actually five weeks Of December every Sunday we're going to look at the wonder this morning the wonder of the word and then the wonder of light and on December 16th two weeks from now as kids lead us in singing maybe some of your little children we're going to look at the wonder of hope and then the wonder of God coming near I made an observation this week I was witnessing something quite uh, normal but yet spectacular A little boy received a gift. It was wrapped, and he was given the green light, the green light to rip into it. And he unwrapped this package like a little boy should. And in this package was a blue shovel. And this guy declared the fact that he got a blue shovel. He let everybody know it. His parents, I'm sure they purchased it for him. He let an older sibling know about it who didn't seem that impressed and a younger sibling who was unaware of shovels and life pretty much. And he was letting everybody know, I got a blue shovel. Look at this blue shovel. I was an innocent bystander and he shoved his shovel in my face. I got a shovel. And I couldn't help but think of the expectation and anticipation the potential, the possibilities, the awe, and the wonder. I get a shovel. I get to dig and discover. Now, if you gave me a shovel or if I gave you a shovel, there would be a different response, right? What would that mean? It would mean probably backbreaking labor. Or maybe you have to bury a beloved pet. Or for some of you, you're covering up a crime scene. Like, it's a different situation, right, when we give each other A shovel, But for this little guy, he wanted everybody to witness his blue shovel. The awe and the wonder. What can I unearth? What's around the corner? This is a time of year, if you're like my family, you have to watch several movies for it to be Christmas, right? To kind of capture, recapture the wonder. We need to see Home Alone, right? We need to see this guy, Kevin, in Home Alone. It's it's not Christmas if we don't see him. But you fast forward to this real person, Macaulay Caulkin, and this is him today. And we see this and we think, if you know his life story, what has happened? What's happened to him? And we, we sort of live with this vision of life that life on the screen, the, the vision that Hollywood gives us, is, it's something magical and we can marvel at it and we can make up the wonder. But then life gets real, and we lose something along the way. You see, life has a way of beating the wonder out of us. I saw a, a cartoon. i got to share it with you. This is uh, if, if, if there was a modern Home Alone. You would see Kevin come come out of his room. He'd say, Mom, Dad. Uh, he would text his mom, Hello, I'm Home Alone. And then she would respond by saying, Kevin, I'm so sorry. We just boarded, but I'll get off the plane and come right home. The end. Aren't you glad they didn't have texting in the early 90s when Home Alone came out but there is for real there is something that happens to us the awe and the wonder just gets beat out of us life does that doesn't it you get betrayed you want something and it doesn't work out there's a loss of something or for some of you more painfully a loss of someone in a layer this invisible thin membrane layer forms around your heart. And another loss means another layer. And the layer hardens and it thickens. And you roll your eyes more frequently. You retreat. You pull back. And ever so gradually with arms folded over your chest, you become one more spectator. Is this the life that God designed for us? Is it what He intends? The psalmist tells us to taste and see. In Ephesians, we're told to awake and arise from our slumber. Listen to the words from the Word, the words that give connotation to experiencing wonder. When Jesus rebuked the wind, it says the disciples greeted that reality with fear and amazement. When the women ran and found an empty tomb, they trembled and they were bewildered. When the women and the men waited in an upper room, 120 of them, for the Spirit to fall and the church To begin, it says that they were awestruck and perplexed. When Saul's friends on the road to Damascus witnessed him witnessing something, someone, they were speechless. So to recap, fear and amazement, trembling and bewilderment, awestruck, perplexed, and speechless, the language of wonder. This morning as we look at the wonder of the word, it's gonna we are for, in December going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, a lot of churches are going to be in at Luke chapter 2. We're going to change it up a little bit and go to John chapter 1. Now there are, uh, many of you know, there are four gospel accounts of the life of of Jesus is a part of this best-selling book of all time four gospel narratives and some of you in university environments you have learned that this is sort of for some people it's an axe to grind we talk about John being written later some 60 years later after the life of Christ and there being some sort of disparity between the gospel narratives and there is not okay intellectually let me be honest with you there's unity there's symmetry there's beauty with the four narratives and it's this way it's four different accounts so think of it from this perspective if you were to witness a movie, let's say, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and you were to sit down and watch the movie with three of your friends. So four of you see the movie How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And then you were asked to write about your account, your perspective, your emphasis on that movie. Each of you would have a different account, wouldn't you? Uh, Somebody may emphasize Whoville and the the particular um, situation of the, the, the town. Some would probably focus on Grinch and how... His heart multiplied three times its size in one day. Others may focus on the roast beast and talk about what type of animal that was, right? Some would maybe emphasize the small dog and the big sled or how the small dog was able to pull the big sled. These are different accounts and the people, reasonable readers, that were, would read your reviews would not see the disparity, they would see the cohesion. And that's what we have in four of these gospel writers. Matthew probably emphasized a Jewish audience. We have genealogy, we have fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Mark uh, probably was thinking of the Roman culture there and he talked about a servant meeting and ministering uh, to needs and we see Luke writing probably uh, thinking of the Greek audience there and Um, a sacrificial, sympathetic son of man, he sets forth to us. And John, the gospel writer John, is an older guy. Uh, He is is probably grandfatherly, uh, known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And much later, um, he writes, and he wants us to know why. The others explain and tell us about events in the life of Jesus, and John wants us to know why. And so we before we put up John chapter one on our screen, consider what it says, just listen to me in John 20, 31. It says that these things were written, here's the why. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing in him, you might have life in his name. You got distracted a little bit, didn't you? Because we went ahead and put the verse up. John, let me say it, John 20, 31. These things were written so that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Uh, years ago, I got a phone call about a man that I really loved and admired, and he was, on, he was in his last days, probably his last moment. And I got the call, and I, he was under hospice care, and I went to be with him and his family. And this was a man who served time in prison. Many years prior, when we got out, it was a felony conviction. When he got out, he looked for work and he had a hard time finding it. And he landed a job, you know, God often opens a door through people, through us, and somebody gave him a chance and he capitalized on this opportunity and God blessed him. It was a life of prosperity. In fact, it was catalytic when he got this job and he created jobs for other people. He had hundreds of employees, just a blessed man. And here he was at the end of his life, and I got to be there and be his pastor and he called me in and when it was his last moment and he, as I got to his bedside there with his family, he said to me, can, can, we, can we do the hand thing? I guess a man, an old man of his generation is too proud to say, can we hold hands? I'll never forget those words, can we do the hand thing? And we held hands and we prayed over him and that was his last breath. Life, believing. This was a man who said, I want rivers of living water to flow out of me. His last confession was that he believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has been given life in his name. He passes, he parts into eternity. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the wonder of the word. Here we are. In the beginning was what? The word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The creation, the beginning of it all. In the beginning, the Word. So in this we see, we see the wonder of the Word, the beginning of it all. Everything has a beginning, and every beginning has a cause. Those first three words, do you recognize them? What do you recognize? Where do you recognize them from? John 1 parallels Genesis 1. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And it tells us Genesis 1, 2, that the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit, it gets spooky here, and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. There was chaos and God brought order. Darkness hovering over, formless and void, and the creative God does that. He's done it for life in creating it, and he wants to bring that beauty and symmetry and order into your chaos as well. That's the creative God in the beginning. Everything has a beginning, and every beginning has a cause. John 1 hearkens back. John does To Genesis 1. I think also of Romans chapter 1, it says that God in His creation, and we can enjoy it, can't we? When God created, He demonstrated, it says, His invisible qualities, His eternal power, um, His divine attributes on display for us through His creation. When's the last time that you marveled at the beauty around you? When is the last time that you learned about creation and it led to a, a well-ordered heart and mind. Albert Einstein once said, and I don't want any angry emails here because I believe part of this, but Albert Einstein once said that, that religion without science is blind, but science without religion is lame. In other words, that idea from a, from a brilliant scientific mind is that science tells us how, it tells us what. But when God speaks, the idea there is that we would learn We would learn why. A pastor friend of mine says that every ology falls under theology. When you learn, Paul, one of the most brilliant minds in history, an early follower of Jesus that we read from a lot, he said to his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed. Do you see that? I believe. I believe. Life is not lame. I believe but I know who I believe. It's not blind. There is history. I've been a witness of this and I bring that knowledge to my beliefs. You know, we, we all share some things in common. One of the things that we share in common is that we occupy this planet Earth and we are currently spinning on our axis at 1,000 miles per hour and we're speeding through space at 67,000 miles per hour. Today, even though we're gonna disperse from here shortly and go our own separate ways, we will all travel 1.3 million miles. Have you thought about that? And thank God for that today. This Earth, this planet, this third rock from the sun, As we say, it is larger than Mars and Mercury and our moon, but it's smaller than Saturn and Neptune and Jupiter. And this will blow your mind. Jupiter is 1,320 times larger than Earth, but it's 10 times smaller than the sun. And the sun is one small star in a billion stars of our galaxy and our galaxy that we affectionately call the Milky Way is one of 100 billion plus galaxies in the universe I mean wow are you with me there so you can take you can take 1,000 you know Texas is big right some of you drove out west like Texas is big but you take this planet and you put 1,321 of these into a Jupiter, and Jupiter is 10 times smaller than the sun, and the sun is small in this galaxy compared to other stars. Wow. Like, wow. That is the God that we serve. In the beginning, God created. Some of you didn't know you were spinning that much and traveling that fast, and you're not even dizzy. Cool, dude. A doctor wrote a book called Margin, I read it, It, it's about the white space, it's about slowing down and being people of worship and restoring our our health and our our soul. And he talks that as our bodies, our human bodies are, he calls it a miracle of of, of complexity and sophistication that's beyond comprehension. He says our heart beats and our and and our blood circulates and our enzymes, our electrolytes catalyze and our enzymes do things and our liver detoxifies and on and on, all these fancy things, too many doctors in the room for me to get deep on this. But he he says it's amazing the, the precision of the body And what it does. And you don't think about that, do you? It's automatic. It's involuntary. You don't tell your heart to beat. You don't tell your brain to think. Some of you should. But it just happens, right? Your brain has thought and intention, right? And your heart beats. It's automatic and involuntary. Reading and studying about us, about the one who created us in the beginning. God created and created you and I. And we are made up of DNA strains. And these strains in your body alone uh, could, could, they do stretch to the moon and back 1,500 times. You see, every ology falls under theology. Theology is the greatest ology. It's the study of of God. But I learn about the planets. I learn about some of the facts that I dropped on you today. And it makes all the more me appreciate God's written word in Psalms 8 when a shepherd boy walks out into a night sky in Psalm 8 and looks at the starry host above. And he says, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I so itty bitty, just a speck, just a cosmic speck in this universe. A universe with intention and planning and intelligent design and meaning. In fact, a God who creates and loves when we learn those facts about the human body, it makes me marvel all the more of Psalm 139 that tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You see these ologies bring knowledge to our faith and our faith makes sure that life isn't lame and we're curious and we wanna know and we are belief creatures. We have this built in need, eternity in our hearts to believe in God. I'm gonna put a quote up that you've never seen in church before. The proportion of the mass, this is not in the Bible, the proportion of the mass of a neutron of hydrogen that's converted to energy during nuclear fusion is 0.007%. So I want you to memorize this and say it over lunch, okay? Very, very important fact. Here's what I want you to think about. If this figure was 0.006, there would, the universe itself would be all hydrogen, thus no life. If this figure was 0.008 there would be an absence of hydrogen thus no life we kind of hide it at times it was prominent last week but that's a finely tuned piano and so is the universe in which we live everything has a beginning and every beginning has a cause the precision of which it is there. It says in Colossians 1. In fact, Louis Giglio says that there really is no BC. There is no before Christ because Paul teaches us what we learn from the disciple John that Jesus was there in the beginning Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, triune God from the beginning of time. And it says in Colossians 1 that he was before all things, okay? So Christmas is not an idea where God changed his mind and he saw sin and was surprised by it and entered in and fractured lives, and so he thought of little baby Jesus, right? That Jesus, no. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. Jesus came, God in human flesh, and he tabernacled, he tented, he dwelled among us in human flesh. The wonder of that story. But Jesus was there from the beginning. In him, he was there before all things. And it says, in him, Colossians 1.17, that he holds all things together. And I love that expression. Have you ever had anybody tell you to hold it together? I do. I mean, I hear that a lot. It's just because I'm kind of uh, up and down and temperamentally um, strange. But oftentimes people will tell me, hold it together. Last night... Um, a very evil man named Nick Saban, uh, running a totalitarian regime with referees beholden to him. He he interviewed after a game after winning yet another yawn-boring SEC championship game, and he he almost almost showed a soft emotion. Not quite. You got to kind of use your imagination. But he was talking about his quarterback who came in, who he benched last year, and he almost got emotional. And I'm sure the inner Nick Saban was telling the outer persona of Nick Saban to hold it together, right? And when someone tells you to hold it together, often we're thinking of our emotions or our composure or our career or our reputation. And I've noticed that every time somebody tells me to hold it together, it's really close to falling apart. And so we stand here today and we think of this universe. We think of nuclear fusion and we think of the distance that we live from the sun. And we think about the existence of a moon, listen to this, that propels the earth to tilt on its axis at 23.5%. How important is that 23.5? It's life or death. And so with the precision of the axis, the orbit of the earth, around the universe to carbon forms, to the strength of gravity, all of it says that this is being held together in unbelievable fashion. Scientists and scholars of religion and philosophy have referred to this as the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And he In the beginning, the one who created is also the one who's holding it together. Hey, God, thank you for holding it together. Thank you that in the beginning we have the wonder, we have the wonder of the word. It says this in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, the Word, whom He appointed heir of all things. And through Him also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being sustaining, here we go, he's holding it together, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We'll look at this in the next couple of weeks when we talk about God, the wonder of God coming near, the wonder of hope and the wonder of light and how that that light shines in our darkness, our dark places. But here we see this reality that every life speaks. Do you believe that? every life speaks, everybody's saying something. Think about it with me. If you're shopping across the way at McDade's and you run into a woman whose hair is disheveled and her socks don't match and her eyes are glazed over, what is she saying? She may be saying that I'm an exhausted mom of a young toddler. If you're at a coffee shop and you see a guy with fresh tattoos and a long beard and he's sipping some organic soy latte and he's streaming some obscure band on his Spotify playlist, what is his life saying? He's saying that he's still on his parents' insurance. (laughs) Last week, I was at Starbucks on Northside Drive and I saw Richard Swartz. What is his life saying? One call, that's all. That's exactly right. He doesn't know me, but I speak to him now in public. I'm like, hey, and I say it out loud in front of a lot of people. Hey, I've been trying to reach you. I've been, I've been calling. I just can't, you won't return. Everybody's life says something. And here's the truth of it all. We think, don't act like you're not me judging people, you judgers. But we look at a life and we say, hey, their outward, exp- outward expression, of how they're dressed, what they're drinking, where they're hanging out, what they look like if their socks match. We make judgments about people, and in some respects, sometimes we're right because every life speaks. But it's not until someone speaks a word and a string of words and sentences and paragraphs and even novels that we get to know them. It's why we're fanatical about groups. It's why we challenge every one of you to get out of rows and into circles, and a big part of it is to share your story and to hear other people's stories because unless someone speaks a word, you're not going to know who they are. You don't know me until you hear me establish convictions and explain conclusions and talk about life. You don't know me, and that's the way that it is. And we live in a world... Listen, I want, to, I want to challenge somebody, maybe convict somebody, maybe help some homes here. But we live in a world where a word needs to be spoken under our roofs. A friend and I went to see the movie First Man last month. And I won't tell you all about it if you plan on watching it later on Netflix or something. But this was the story. It was an intensely personal story of Neil Armstrong and our, when we landed on the moon, set, of course, in the 60s and then uh, ending in the late 60s, I believe, 1969. And there was, um, the viewer got a peek into Neil Armstrong's life. Again, I don't, don't want to spoil everything, but Neil and his wife lost a child. They lost a little baby girl when she was only three years old. And the pain. The very next day after the funeral, he went to work. He went to NASA and he sat at his desk in Houston. And this was the 60s when men were particularly stoic. And his boss, his supervisor, says, do you, Neil, do you need, you need a day? You need a week? And he said, No, I need to work. And Hollywood was betraying a painful reality that exists in some of us, yeah, even some of us here in this room, is it will be busy and we'll neglect and we won't speak a word. And there's a scene, it's on the eve of him joining other astronauts. He was chosen as one of the few to enter the capsule and head to the moon and hopefully land on the moon. But there's a wife in their Houston home and it's dark, the silhouette of lights add to the scene the Hollywood version, but this wife is asking Neil, she's saying, honey, are you going to talk to the boys? Though they lost a little daughter, they had two little boys. All the more reason, right? Talk to them. He said, no, they're they're asleep. She said, no, they're not. They're not asleep, and you're going to talk to them. I like it when a woman steps up. I married one of those. Hey, you are going to do this, right? You're going to do this. And so what do you do? You do it. Man, you with me? It's worth the drive today. You do it. To do what she says and Neil Armstrong does what she says but he didn't have it in him the pain of loss the stoicism of his temperament the 60s the time in which he lives and he sat there at the dinner table with his boys a scene that just begs for emotion and love and affection it was devoid of it all and it was like a press conference And he shared the bare minimum of facts with no emotion. And as you would a press conference, he said, are there any questions? And there was just this moment that begged for a word. Like a word to be spoken into it. And so many homes and hearts were missing that. Fellas, come on. Come on. A word spoken, every life speaks. And God is saying from the writer of Hebrews, he's saying that when God spoke, he used some angry, cranky old prophets who speak with relevance to our day, I might add. But then he chose the exact representation. When he decided to speak the word that was first and final, the greatest word of all, it was through his son Jesus. So what does Jesus say to us? That's what we're going to be looking at. The wonder of the word, the wonder of light, the wonder of hope, the wonder of God being near. But I, want to, I just want to kind of pull back and give a bit of the panoramic of John. He would later write of this, his account of Jesus of the rivers of living water. In other words, before you're an old guy drooling in the corner, you ought to live a life that flows and blesses and brings life to other people. John chapter 7, the rivers of living water. He talks about, in John 10, a life that listens, that we would be children listening to our Father, we would be sheep listening to our shepherd, listening to God's voice. In John 4, he would say, be worshipers. He gives the account of Jesus and the woman at the well and the invitation for every human heart to worship him in spirit And in truth. There is a dirty word I want to show you. We're not scared at Fondren Church. Here's this word. It just sounds bad, right? Say it out loud if you would. You got it? I struggled last week from this same stage saying, Scarecrow in a cucumber. Van's laughing. Scarecrow in a cucumber field. I got it right, bro. Habituation. Everything about that sounds bad. Here's what it means. Over time, Awareness fades. I almost never wear a watch. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't work, by the way. But it's it's just, I guess, maybe a fashion statement. I'm not sure what I'm saying, but but when I when I wear this watch, I notice that I'm wearing the watch. Some of you wear a watch all the time, and what happens? You don't know that you're wearing it. I was with a friend this week at his house with his family. And they have a dog that eats their furniture. I don't mean chews on their furniture, I mean eat, like consumes and digests their furniture. And this big happy dog, man, was eating this foam rubber cushioned Ottoman. And it, it occurred to me as I was talking to them about some serious life issues, I thought they're really not aware of the half eaten foam rubber exposed Ottoman. Like they're unaware of it. Why? Because as time passes, Awareness fades I on the other hand was very aware of it and you see this is a dirty word Because we all I think it's one of the greatest challenges of life is Overcoming spiritual habituation. I Use deception to get me out of trouble. I Yell at my kids I worry about money I get jealous of people who are more attractive and successful than me. I pass judgment. We become, as time passes, we become, we, this awareness about us fades. So John talks about being worshipers. He talks about being listeners. And here's a strange phenomenon I've learned that Susan and I have learned in parenting when we raise our voice to get our kids attention like we want the thunder to roll we want them to hear something they instinctively tune us out it's a marvelous gift that god or satan has given them right they just tune us out but when we purposefully whisper in private because it's about a present they're going to get or punishment they're going to get like they can hear us three rooms over and two closed doors like they lean in don't they they lean into here and here's the thing i believe many times god chooses a lower voice a gentle whisper so that we would learn to be better listeners the wonder of the word The older I get, honestly, the more my faith is growing. And the more I believe in a talkative God. But hear me for a second. In 1 Kings 19, some of you know this story. There was a wind. It was a wind so powerful that it ripped mountains and tore stones. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. And after the fire, do you know what there was? A gentle whisper. And scripture tells us in this great ancient story it says that God was not in he was not in the wind though mighty he wasn't in it he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire he was in the gentle whisper a life a life filled with wonder where we would pay attention we would fight spiritual habituation and learn to be listeners to follow the voice of our shepherd To be those who worship in spirit and in truth. Closing with this quote. I wrote that. I don't know who to give it credit to. It was in my journal that I wrote. I wrote this several years ago. Someone said, I need to worship because without it, I can forget that I have a big God beside me and I can live in fear. I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and I plow through life with blinders on. I need to worship because without it, my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. The wonder of the Word. The God who invites us to worship Him in spirit and in truth and to train ourselves to heighten our auditory skills to hear Him. When he speaks. See, we bought into this notion that wonder is some magical, mystical place. It's an exotic, foreign land. What happens when your vocation is over? What happens when it's January 1st and the lights come down? You see, wonder never leaves for the one who worships. Would you stand with me? Would you bow your heads and we just have a few moments. We're going to sing about God being worthy of our praise. And I want to ask you in this moment. Would you ask God to help you taste and see? Would you ask him to help you be a listener? To be a worshiper? And I just say amidst my sin and frailty, and my own brokenness and my own junk, and I've got plenty. But may God is speaking. And if we affix our hearts, humble our posture, He'll speak. Above all, He speaks to us in who Jesus is. Be a part of this, this month of light and hope and a God who is near. God, we've worshiped you today with your bigness. You are vast and majestic. And in the beginning, you spoke the word. And God, thank you. There's so much to marvel at. Let us worship you now. Lord, the altar is open for your people to pray, to be prayed for. Receive this worship in the moments that we have. in Jesus, in you, amen. You come today if we can pray with you.